You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. There's nothing quite like getting lost in a good story. My wife and I have tried to pass that love down to our three boys, and so this summer we gave them a reading list filled with stories. And some of those stories were short, others were part of lengthy series. Some were filled with adventures, others were filled with humor. But there's something about a good story, whether you read it, you watch it, you listen to it, and the best stories all have a similar plot structure. So it begins by setting a scene. So it's a a distant kingdom or the beginning of a war or a chance encounter. And from that beginning, the action builds. There will be these moments of tension and uncertainty until it reaches the climax. And from there, a few loose ends are tied up. And the story resolves, the best stories resolve with that happily ever after moment. Jonah chapters 1 through 3 make a great story. So the setting is a prophet who's commanded by God to take a message to a, a, di- a distant land. The, the action builds as that prophet disobeys God and he runs the other direction. And so God pursues him by a storm. And he's, he's thrown overboard into the, into the sea where he's swallowed by a great fish. And the story comes to a climax as the prophet is in the, the belly of that fish and he repents of his running away. Chapter 3 brings resolution. As the prophet obeys God, he goes to that land, he proclaims the message, the people hear it, repent, beg God for mercy, God forgives them, and they live happily ever after. Like that's where the story of Jonah should end. But it doesn't end there. Like Jonah chapter 4 shouldn't exist. It doesn't fit the structure of good stories. It happens after, happily ever after. So why is it included? I think the ultimate purpose of the book of Jonah is actually found here in chapter 4. There are a lot of good lessons in the first three chapters, but the biggest lesson comes in this unexpected final chapter. The final chapter begins and ends in surprising ways. It, It begins with an angry Jonah and it ends without an ending. Look at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah has just been part of one of the greatest revivals in history. An entire city has repented of their sin and turned to God for mercy. Jonah should be be overjoyed. If I were to get up and preach one Sunday and my entire town repented, I would be on the phone instantly like, Jason, guess what happened? Like they listened. They repented. Can you believe it? He should be excited. That is the natural response to what has happened in chapter 3. But he is not excited. He is enraged. Five times in chapter 4, Jonah's anger is mentioned. He's so angry that he wants to die. Twice he says that in chapter 4. He says, it would be better for me to die than to live Verse 3, and then again in verse 9. Now, and this isn't just an idle statement, sort of like, woe is me, I wish I would die. He means it, because in chapter 1, he's running from God, and because he's running from God, God sends a storm. And when the sailors find out what's happened, and they realize Jonah is at fault, Jonah says, do this. 
He says, throw me overboard. Why does he say that? Why doesn't he say, turn the boat around? Like, I'm going this way, so God sent a storm. If we go this way, God will probably stop the storm. But Jonah would rather die than turn around. He is so angry. He would rather drown in the sea or bake in the desert than keep on living. Why is Jonah so angry? That's a good question for us to ask whenever we get angry, especially since we live in a time of perpetual outrage. We just get more and more angry, and we don't take time to stop and consider why we're angry or whether our anger is a right response. You know, anger is like a metal detector. The closer the metal detector gets to the treasure, the louder it beeps. Well, the closer something gets to what we treasure, the angrier we get. Our anger grows more and more fierce when something we treasure is threatened. So why is Jonah angry? Well, look at verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah is angry because God forgave Nineveh instead of destroying it. Jonah wanted to see Nineveh suffer. Even after this exchange with God, Jonah sets up outside the city like it's the 4th of July, like hoping to see God send fireworks. See, if Jonah had thought God would condemn the Ninevites, he never would have run away in the first place. In fact, I think Jonah would have run to Nineveh without packing. Jonah reminds me of Inspector Javert from Victor Hugo's Les Mis. Like Javert's only interest was seeing guilty people condemned and judged. And an act of mercy so shakes him that at the end of the story, he takes his own life. He can't reconcile mercy with his desire for justice. Jonah can't reconcile his thirst for judgment with God's act of mercy. But why? Why does God's mercy make Jonah so angry? You see, Jonah had been the recipient of God's mercy throughout the book. And that didn't seem to bother him. God was kind and gracious to him and he was fine with it. In 2 Kings 14, we're told that Jonah was given a message, a positive message, to take to the king of Israel, and he did it without complaining, without running away. So Jonah was fine with God being kind and gracious at certain times. Why does this act of grace so anger Jonah? His problem was not with God being gracious but with God being gracious to those people. Jonah did not turn and run the opposite way because he was afraid of the Assyrians. Jonah turned and ran the opposite way because he was, God, he was afraid God would be gracious to the Assyrians and he did not want them to experience God's grace. To Jonah, 
the Assyrians were those people who deserved to be condemned and judged, not forgiven. Why did Jonah see the Assyrians, the people of Nineveh, as those people unworthy of God's grace? Well, there's a clue in the text. Look at what Jonah says to God in verse 2. He says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? My country. Jonah has this strong nationalistic fervor. In fact, the very first words that Jonah speaks in the entire book are this, chapter 1, verse 9, I am a Hebrew. So when Jonah was asked to tell his country about God's grace, he was quick to Ogipe. But when Jonah was asked to tell a different country about God's grace, he ran the other way. He would tell his people, but he would not tell those people. Anyway that people are different from you can be a reason for you to treat them as those people. It could be something national, physical, spiritual, social, intellectual. Anytime you see a difference with someone else and that difference causes you to view yourself as superior, you turn them into those people. So each of us needs to ask, Who are those people in my life? So we we can't assume, well, I mean, I would never do what Jonah did. Treating a group of people as less valuable or less worthy has constantly happened in history, and Christians are not immune to it. The early church, they struggled with this. There were Jewish believers who looked at Gentile Christians as those people. In fact, even the apostle Peter and Barnabas for a time did this. They refused to eat with these Gentile Christians until Paul called them out for their hypocrisy. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, who stood boldly against heresy and fought for the gospel, he viewed the Jews as those people. In one of his writings, he said, we should burn down their synagogues and destroy their sacred texts. George Whitfield was the most notable preacher of the Great Awakening. He preached and thousands upon thousands came to faith in Christ. He was burdened for orphans and so he built an orphanage in Georgia. To fund the orphanage, he had a plantation where slaves worked. Because slavery was illegal in Georgia at the time, he actually became one of the leading proponents to legalize slavery. A few months ago, I met a 71-year-old African-American Christian in my town. And he told me how when he drove recently by the pharmacy, there's an old closed-down pharmacy right near our church office. He says he remembers as a kid having to go to the back door. He wasn't allowed to go inside to pick up their medicine. And the owners of that pharmacy were members of a church in town. Earlier this year, I was in Moldova, and I discussed this passage with a group of pastors, and they said, oh, we know who that is. For Moldovans, it's Russians. They're those people. Because of our pride, because of our self-love, any way in which someone is different than we are can be enough to turn them into those people. So I think about myself. What am I? Well, I'm a Christian. So Muslims, atheists, 
Mormons become those people. I'm a man. So women, women can become those people, you know. Women. I'm American. So anyone from another country can be those people. I speak English, so when I hear someone speaking a different language, those people. I'm white, so anyone with a different skin color can be those people. I'm middle class. I live in a suburb that used to be a farming community, and sometimes we look at different suburbs, and we're like, those, those people from North Raleigh think they're better than the rest of us. We joke. But maybe not. So those richer than me, those poorer than me, I'm educated, so those lacking in education can be those people. Our family currently homeschools, so anyone who has a different school choice can be those people. I vote a certain way, so anyone who votes a different way can be those people. Any way that someone is different than me can become a way for me to look down upon them and treat them as less deserving of God's grace. I can even do this with people who sin differently than I do. I remember hearing someone make a joke when I was a little kid. It was a terrible joke. It wasn't funny, but it, more than that, it was terrible. And it went something like this. How, how do you stop the AIDS epidemic? Well, put all the gay people on a rocket, send them to the moon to populate it. Apparently, those people deserve judgment for their sin, but we don't. See, Jonah's defense for his attitude could have been, don't you understand how evil the Assyrians are? I mean, look at these people. They're, they're wicked. They're so violent that it's, that it's known around the world. It's so violent that God sees it from heaven. So Jonah could have said his issue with them wasn't their nationality. It was their depravity. And who could really blame him for wanting judgment on people who sin like that, Right? Seeing grace as only available for certain sins and certain sinners shows how greatly we misunderstand both sin and grace. We see sin from the wrong perspective. If sin is a forest, we view it from the ground. And so we walk through the forest of sin and we see certain trees that are so tall. Those are other people's sins. Like they're redwoods. And look at the size of that sin. And we look at our sins like here, oh, a little crepe myrtle. It's sort of cute. Flowers. Oh, Japanese maple. Look at that cute little sin. And so we look at it and like, I mean, that's really bad. But, you know, it's, uh, there's a big difference. Well, God views the forest from above. Have you ever flown over a forest? You don't notice the difference in the height of the trees. All you see is this dark blot. When we treat people with certain struggles as those people, we ignore what God says about our sin and our need for grace. Jonah's anger came from God's grace on those people who Jonah felt were unworthy of his grace. Is is Jonah's anger okay? Is it right for him to be angry? God asked him that question twice. Verse 4, verse 9, Jonah... Is it right for you to be angry? 
to help Jonah answer that question, God gave him an object lesson. So he first sends a shade tree to make Jonah more comfortable, verse 6. Then God sends a worm to eat the shade tree, verse 7. Then he sends the sun and a scorching east wind to make Jonah miserable, verse 8. And then God asks him the question again, verse 9. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And this time the anger is more about the plant dying than about God's grace to Nineveh. And when Jonah responds with this answer, yes, it is right, God asks him a question, verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? See, Jonah's anger is wrong. Not just his anger over the plant, but also his anger over Nineveh. And God here connects the two together. Jonah is angry for the same reason. Jonah's anger came from loving himself more than loving his neighbor. Jonah's anger at Nineveh was born out of pride. I deserve forgiveness. Those people don't. And Jonah's anger at the plant was born out of pride as well. I deserve protection. But those people don't. Jonah's selfishness is revealed here in both what makes him angry and what makes him happy. There's a connection between the two. Verse 1 says that Jonah was exceedingly angry. And verse 6 says that Jonah was exceedingly glad. What makes you angry and what makes you glad reveal what you really love. So Jonah was angry when those people different from him were not condemned, and Jonah is happy when he's comfortable. Both reveal that Jonah's greatest love is Jonah. The root of bigotry is always a love of self. We love ourselves so much that we exalt ourselves over people that are different than us. Jonah loves himself more than 120,000 people who are spiritually ignorant. See, self-love shrinks our world. It makes us miserable. The only time in this entire book that Jonah is happy is when a plant grows up to give him shade. See, the more he focuses on himself, the more shallow and narrow he becomes. What makes you happy? What makes you angry? These questions reveal what you treasure most. Self-love also makes you increasingly irritable. See, when my happiness comes from me being seen as superior to others, or from having greater comfort than other people, I will get more and more annoyed, more and more irritated, because the world doesn't think I'm quite as special as I think I am. I think people should treat me with respect and deference, but apparently not everyone has gotten that memo. Are you irritable? Are you easily annoyed? Think of it like a pressure gauge. And annoyance is the red line. 
And what it shows is how full of yourself you are. That the more full of yourself you are, the higher that red line goes, the more annoyed and irritable you are. See, Jonah did not love his neighbor as himself. He just loved himself. Now this final chapter has some important lessons to teach us about pride and selfishness and how pride and selfishness produce bigotry and prejudice. See, bigotry happens whenever I look down upon someone who is different than me. Bigotry is when I quickly and easily rush to condemn those who hold different opinions or have different struggles. Here are three principles of bigotry from this text. Number one, good theology does not keep you from bigotry. Good theology does not keep you from bigotry. Jonah knew his theology. He, he quotes from the Old Testament in verse 2. His theology did not keep him from bigotry. He actually used his theology as fuel for his bigotry. He ran from Nineveh because he knew God's grace. He knew God would forgive. So Jonah's issue is not a lack of theology, but a failure to apply theology to his own life. Now the passage Jonah quoted is repeated in numerous places in the Old Testament, but the original appearance is Exodus 34.6. So it comes right after the nation of Israel has been delivered from Egypt, and they, they build this idol, this golden calf, and they worship it, and they attribute their deliverance to it. They said, this calf is what has saved us from Egypt. Well, God, he tells Moses, he's like, I'm going to wipe these people out. Look at their sin. Look at their idolatry. Look at their wickedness. I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses pleads with God to spare them. And God does. And the reason God does is because he is, and this is what God says, he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So Jonah, he knows God's character. He understands God's work, but he doesn't apply it to his own situation. He is glad for God's grace on his people, but not on those people. So some Christians write theology. For instance, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Like that is right theology. From cover to cover, the Bible teaches there is one way to heaven. It is through Jesus Christ. That right theology has been wielded as a weapon to harm and hurt those from other religions. See, the Bible teaches there is only one way to salvation, but it doesn't mean we treat Muslims as those people. We need to have compassion. Learn this lesson from Jonah. Have compassion on those who are ignorant of God's saving work. Muslims don't need our prejudice. They need our Savior. Here we are, sitting in Redeemer Bible Church. So I assume we know our theology. I mean, just walking into an auditorium this beautiful makes you more spiritual. Pretty sure it's in the Bible somewhere. I mean, you, like Jonah, can quote verses from the Old Testament. But right theology will only keep you from bigotry if it helps you love Jesus more. Jesus said, the person who knows their sin is great, 
And so they know they've been forgiven of much. They will love much. But the person who thinks their sin is not great and they have been forgiven very little will love little. The number one way you can fight the temptation to see certain people as those people is applying the gospel to your own life. So when you read the Bible and you see warnings about sin in the Bible, don't think about other people. The seed of every sin lies in your own heart. Apply the truth to your life. See, nothing would be worse than a church that could recite a catechism without obeying it. That could quote verses without keeping them. Love good theology. But don't think good theology is sufficient to conquer the pride in your heart that leads to bigotry. Second, God is not okay with bigotry in his people. God is not okay with bigotry in his people. So what does God do about the bigotry in Jonah's heart? He appoints a plant to grow, verse 6. He appoints a worm to eat it, verse 7. He appoints a wind to blow, verse 8. God would not leave Jonah in his pride and prejudice. And there's a fascinating word choice in verse 6. So if you, I have the ESV. If you have the ESV, it says that God appointed a plant to grow to save Jonah from, and here's the word choice, discomfort, his discomfort. You may have a note that tells you to look down at the bottom of the page and it says, or could be translated, his evil, his discomfort. It actually is the very same word used in chapter 1, verse 2, about Nineveh's evil. So God sent Jonah to save Nineveh from their evil, and now he sends a plant to save Jonah from his evil. Why did God send Jonah to Nineveh in the first place? I mean, can you imagine Jonah appearing before the committee to decide whether or not he should go? So, Jonah, we were thinking about sending you to Nineveh. He's like, nope. I don't understand what you're saying. Like, so we're thinking about like, supporting you to go to Nineveh. I won't go. I'm confused. Like, so we think this is a good thing. You should go to Nineveh. He says, no, I, I mean, I, you don't understand me. I will literally run the opposite way if you tell me I'm supposed to go. We're like, well, but don't, I mean... These people need to hear the gospel. And he says, no, they don't. I hope they burn. I hate them. Who, after that, says he's the guy? Like, he's the one. How bad are the other candidates, right, if he's the one you want to send? Does God not know that Jonah has this prejudice and bigotry in his heart? Wouldn't it have been better to send a prophet not blinded by their sin? God sent Jonah because of his bigotry. He was going to take care of two evils at once. The evil in the city of Nineveh and the evil in the heart of Jonah. See, God is not only sending his people to save others from their sin, but he's saving his people from the sin that is rooted deep in their own hearts. See, God can multitask. I can't. Multitasking for me means ignoring what I'm supposed to be doing while I do something else. And then switching. And then switching back. 
But God has this ability to multitask. And so God can have someone move in next door to you, not only so that they'll be saved by your witness, but so your heart will be changed by your service to them. God could have you lose your job and have to go to the food bank, not only so that you can share the gospel with others, but so that your perspective on the poor would be fundamentally altered. God could have you treated unfairly at work so that you learn to serve, to care for, to demonstrate compassion on those oppressed in your community. And this is what God is doing. God is constantly pursuing sinners. This is the message of Jonah, that God relentlessly pursues sinners because he is gracious. And so he pursues a wicked city, he pursues a bunch of pagan sailors, and he pursues a rebellious prophet. He's always pursuing his people to rescue them from the evil inside. In this final chapter, Jonah stands as a representative of the entire nation of Israel, a nation called by God to be a light to the Gentiles. And God is asking, through Jonah, God is asking his people, will you do what I have called you to do? Will you look down upon the Gentiles? Or will you be a light to the Gentiles? As a nation, Israel will respond like Jonah. But the true Israel, the ultimate prophet, Jesus, he will not look down upon the Gentiles. He will be a light to all those who walk in great darkness. He will not run from sinners. He will run to sinners to save them. Jonah wanted to die because others lived. Jesus died so that others could live. See, this book of Jonah is a rebuke to anyone who claims to follow Jesus but is unwilling to engage a a person or a group of people with the gospel. And it's also a reminder that God will not sit idly by and leave you in your prejudice. He will send something. It may be a storm, a fish, a scorching east wind, but God will not leave you alone in your prejudice. He will pursue you. Third, finally, bigotry undermines the mission of God. Bigotry undermines the mission of God. See, God's, or Jonah's bigotry caused him to work against God's plan. So, so God planned to save Nineveh and Jonah runs away. God planned to to demonstrate his grace in this wicked city, but Jonah just wanted judgment. When you look down upon another group of people, when you mark anyone off as those people, you are working against what God is doing. So bigotry and prejudice in any form, whether national, racial, social, political, is anti-gospel. It is anti-gospel because the gospel is the message of grace to the undeserving. But bigotry says, well, I'm deserving of grace. You're not. None of us are. Like That's the point. That's the beauty of grace. When you look down upon others, you undermine the very message you say you believe. Bigotry is also anti-Christ because Jesus condescended and became lowly in order to save others. Like Jesus, Jonah was a prophet from Galilee. 
he was cast into the deep. And because he was cast into the deep, others were saved from death. After three days and three nights, he was raised triumphantly by the power of God. We see much about the story of Jesus in the life of Jonah. But Jesus is so much greater than Jonah. Jesus always looks with mercy on those deserving of judgment. Here's what this means. You and I, like Jonah, are never more unlike Jesus than when we treat someone else as undeserving of grace. Bigotry is anti-gospel, anti-Christ, and anti-God's plan for the future. So God is busy right now pursuing sinners, gathering this diverse group of worshipers, which will someday look like this, Revelation 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We don't just ignore God's plan when we live with prejudice. We undermine it. So God is saving a people who look more beautiful than a rainbow. But we want to make it monochromatic. God is saving a people who sound more beautiful than a choir and we want to make it monotone. God is saving for himself a beautifully diverse group of people. When we harbor bigotry in our hearts, we undermine God's plan for the world. Jonah's bigotry, his prejudice, has turned him into a spectator, watching people die from a distance. Are you a spectator? Are you content to sit and watch from a distance? As people die in their sin. The story of Jonah has some interesting parallels to one of the most famous stories Jesus told. The story of two brothers. The younger brother, the prodigal son, is a lot like Jonah in chapters 1 and 2. So he rebels against his father. He, he runs away from home. He doesn't come back until he reaches his very lowest point, but when he repents, he is welcomed by the Father. The Father celebrates his return. The older brother is a lot like Jonah in chapter 4. He gets angry when the Father shows mercy on the younger son. In his pride and arrogance, he looks down upon his brother who, in his opinion, does not deserve grace. That story ends a lot like the story of Jonah. It ends without an ending. Will the older brother repent of his arrogance? Will he turn from his prejudice? And will he celebrate his father's grace? Will Jonah repent of his arrogance? Will he turn from his prejudice? Will he celebrate his father's grace? I think the stories end that way 
Because it doesn't matter what the older brother chose. And it doesn't matter what Jonah chose. What matters is that we each answer the question ourselves. Will I repent of my arrogance? Will I turn from my prejudice? Will I celebrate the Father's grace? The ending is up to you. Father, I pray right now for my brothers and sisters. I pray that you will expose areas of prejudice, of self-love. I pray that we will not push away and say, well, that cannot be true of me. Lord, we need your help. Sing this in our hearts because bigotry, prejudice is one of those sins that is buried in the very deepest, darkest corners of our heart. It is not socially acceptable. It is not pleasant. And so we hide it. Often it coming out just in our own conversations with ourselves. So I pray, Father, in your grace, expose this sin in our hearts. And then in your grace, forgive us, cleanse us, and give us strength to walk in love for our neighbors. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.